Welcome back to The Pilgrim Soul, a podcast about the journey of faith in the world of today. I'm your host, Sophia, and this week I'm delighted to be joined by a guest, a dear friend of mine, Father Chase Pepper, for an episode on mortality and mourning. Father Chase, welcome to The Pilgrim Soul. I'm so excited, Sophia. Thank you for inviting me. I'm grateful to have you on as a guest today, particularly because, you know, both in conversation and in listening to your awesome homilies, I'm always struck by your insight when it comes to the faith and the church, but also society in general. So I'm really excited today to be able to share this wisdom with our listeners and particularly on the topic of death, a topic that has been of course, since the start of the pandemic, I think close to the hearts and minds of everyone. But before we get there, to start us off, I'm wondering if you would tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, and what you do. Oh, yeah. Um, I am, like you introduced me kindly as Father Chase Pepper, and I am a Holy Cross priest out of the University of Notre Dame studying here at Cambridge with you getting a PhD in theology right now, specifically theology and Dante. So that's why we cross paths in Cambridge when we do. We're both here studying together, living the life of the mind together. But I, uh, beyond that, am a military brat. I guess that's the one of the most important things to understand about the view I have on life. My dad was army, my brother's army. We moved around a lot as kids. So I've always felt mm-hmm. free to explore new places and new ideas like this, I guess. So yeah, I moved around a bit growing up. Undergraduate at Seton Hall University, political science seminary at Notre Dame, uh, getting the MDiv there. And yeah, that's, that's me. Wonderful. Thank you. For our listeners who aren't familiar with Holy Cross, would you just say a word about that? Holy Cross, the Congregation of Holy Cross, is a male religious community in the Catholic Church that was founded in 19th century France by a priest, a diocesan priest there named Father Basil Moreau. And he was living in a culture and a society and a church environment that was in distress because of what the French Revolution had done to people's experience of faith and education at that time. So he had this vision of drawing a group of men together to live the religious life together, a life of discipleship after Jesus Christ, in a way that would teach people how to know, love, and serve God and help to revitalize the life of the church in France at that time. And his idea became very international, very missionary right away. So it quickly spread to the United States. And so now Holy Cross, this religious community, it's an international community all around the world that's very much involved in parish work and educational work with that aim of making God known, loved, and served, and promoting the virtue of hope. Thank you. That's helpful. And it's beautiful because it, I think, points to a number of the entry points that you have to our topic today, that you're not just, like all of us, a member of an immediate family but also a pastor and a minister to those who are dying or have passed away. And then also a member of a community where you see the generations come and go in a way that I I think is distinct from the lived reality of family life. So I'm grateful to have you on today. And I was thinking that we could start our conversation sort of at the deficiencies in our modern approach to mortality and mourning. How would you describe the pathology of our contemporary 
relationship to death. I mean, ultimately, we're afraid of it, aren't we? And we, I'm afraid we don't have social and interior resources in order to face up to it with each other and to talk about it with each other. Even uh, this is something I'm sure you've noticed, but even when we Christians or not uh, talk with each other about death and about mortality, we just don't use that language. We're very paraphrastic in our relationship with death insofar as we have a lot of very um, sometimes necessary, but sometimes problematic ways of talking around the reality that is actually hurting us and weighing down our hearts. The fact that people die, the fact that we lose each other, and we'll talk around the reality, but we won't allow ourselves to always sit with the pain of it, to identify it for what it is, to identify it with each other for what it is. And to, yeah, the word for that is to mourn the reality and not to always shield ourselves from where it is that we actually find ourselves. That's a language issue. That's that's not bad language. And it's not, one shouldn't feel guilty for speaking that way. But if you pay attention to patterns of speech, if a person can never use the word, just they die, it's hard to accept and it's hard to process. It strikes me that this phenomenon is something that may be an artifact of our individualism, that because we've understood ourselves as sort of these atomized disembodied wills, not tied to a community or to a body that is decaying or to thicker social practices, that we not only don't have the resources to draw from in coping with our own death, but we're actually able to keep death at quite a distance for much of our lives, those of us who are blessed with healthy bodies. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I mean, if you just project back how you would imagine your families to have lived a hundred years ago, the dying of a family member, the death of a family member or a friend or whoever it is in the parish community would have been something that the family and the community were responsible for and took care of Mm -hmm. together, touched, saw, you know, the community would have processed, the community would have gathered at the church in order to accompany a person in death, seeing death, acting death as an accompaniment of each other, even through and beyond the distances, what sometimes even feel like absolute distances that can come into our relationships with each other. They still took care of each other. And so for us to not just atomize, but mobilize, uh, we're so distributed now. It's so easy to fly from Notre Dame to Cambridge Not when there's COVID hotels keeping you boxed up for 10 to 14 days or whatever it is that we're doing now. (laughs) But under normal circumstances, it's so easy to fly around the world. And again, that you can be a part of so much more life that way. But maybe we don't have the same resources for taking care of where our roots are. Absolutely. Yeah, it reminds me of I was down in Bolivia one summer in college and The first day I was there was a Sunday, and the woman that I was staying with, the first thing she had me go do was visit with her the grave of her mother in this massive and just fabulously decorated Bolivian cemetery where there were scores and scores of people there bringing flowers, singing songs, talking to their loved ones. It really moved me because that was the first 
vision of a culture that treated death in a different way, yes. where it wasn't this once a year to mark the anniversary when I have to, but sort of an ongoing relationship, as you said, that seems to span an unbridgeable distance. So I think we could learn a lot from that. I wish I had that experience. I, I think I find something like that in Holy Cross, like we were talking about earlier, how we bury each other when a priest or a brother of our community dies, the bells ring across the campus of Notre Dame. The community gathers together in the Basilica. We walk them to the community cemetery. We visit each other. And so even there, we might not have a decorated or a culture uh, beyond our community celebrating that, but there's a sense of belonging nonetheless to every moment of uh, other people's lives from when we enter the community with each other to when we go into the ground. And then when we come out of the ground, when the ultimate picture becomes manifest. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. Would you tell us a little bit more about the Holy Cross Cemetery, actually? Because it's one of the first things that struck me about Holy Cross as a community. It is hands down one of my favorite places in the world. I know that sounds morbid. <laughs> that a cemetery <laughs> could be one of a person's favorite places in the world. But no, it's one of my um, peace places. The, the Grotto at Notre Dame, if you ever find yourself at the Grotto of Notre Dame, there's a road that runs right up to that grotto. And if you take the road from the grotto out past these woods and hills, you come to a little plot of land that is covered in very humble and unadorned crosses, uh, which is the community cemetery for the province of Holy Cross that I belong to in the United States. There's a little more than a thousand graves there. Right now we have maybe a dozen or so funerals there a year, but it's where every member of my community and the province of my community that I belong to have been buried since we came to the United States. So these are graves that go back to, I think, the 1840s, the 18. 50s, and you can trace your own stories there. So like when you are in the midst of a pandemic and when you're reading these news articles about how many dozens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people are dying around the world from this, and you think, I belong to a community that has been here. I belong to people who have seen this because some of the graves in our community, the ones from 1854, 1855, it was a cholera outbreak in that part of Indiana. Right. The school almost shut down. Terrible academic procedure. The administration was hiding the disease from the <laughs> students and the parents Shoot. because they didn't want the parents to take their students back and their money back. So they just bailed everything over, kept everybody there. There were deaths in the community and maybe 11 or 12 deaths of the local population, at least around the university. But you can visit those people. You know who they are. You know that some of them died taking care of each other. You can trace those stories. And so you realize where we are now is where we've been to. And we have the resources to take care of each other. We have the wisdom to draw on from each other. And we have the examples of mm -hmm. hope and perseverance to realize that this too comes to an end. And there will be new challenges on the other side of this. It's not going to be all rosy and everything when we're done. But like we, we belong to each other in a way where we see where we've been. We can see where we're going. We can learn from each other. We can hope with each other. And we still belong to each other. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. It's quite moving. And it occurs to me, you said some of them died caring for each other. And that strikes me as a reality that's quite far from nearly everyone 
that we could come across in today's society. We, whether it's through professionalization of medicine or risk aversion or whatever it is, it's almost unimaginable. I think this in particular is a heavy cross that so many people are bearing during the pandemic of being far from their loved ones as they die and being unable to share in the burden of that physical decline and that fear of moving on and the presence of death. So I'm wondering, do you think that as a result of the pandemic, we might be turning towards a healthier relationship to death? That this sense of I'm missing something when I can't care for my loved ones who are dying. Do you think that sense can be driving us to a renewed acceptance of our own mortality and a renewed practice of mourning? You know, it was a, a surprise for me. I saw an article, I came across an article recently that was published nine months ago. This was back in May, but it was about a judge here in the UK who, in the wake of those first two months of our first lockdown here, mm-hmm. when people were not allowed to be with their family members in care homes and hospitals and people were dying apart from their families and priests were not allowed to access people in the hospitals, right? So we had about two months of that reality here before the government started saying, well, we made a mistake by enforcing this on people. But there was a judge here in the UK who said, people have a fundamental right to be accompanied by and to accompany their loved ones in death. Yeah. The fact that that was coming from a judge surprised me. But to hear like somebody in very uh, public, very secular, very high positions say, can we own the fact that we have a right, very personal. And I think probably from a legal challenge, you could say like it belongs to the right of privacy to determine who you share the most intimate and private, like that is the most private thing. Like even the people you have close to you isn't going to like enter fully into that experience with you. But nevertheless, you can be there with who you choose to be there with. That signals to me that we're having our consciences forced to realize that we're we're socially fragile, Mm -hmm. we're personally fragile, and we have to be able to anticipate the ways that we prepare for that and care for that with each other. And so I, I do think that probably this is going to, there will be good fruits that come from the suffering. A possibility for conversion, yeah. It strikes me that the judge that you mentioned or no, perhaps you're the one who made this connection, but couching it in this right to privacy and this really what what undergirds it is an anthropology of expressive individualism. And if that can give rise to greater protection for this sacred time of accompaniment, then I'm all for it. But it does strike me as ultimately an inadequate answer. And I'm wondering if you could direct our gaze to some of the primary ways that The church has a unique answer to our need for accompaniment in our own deaths and to accompany those who are dying. Yeah, well, in terms of the resources that the church gives us, what holds together in my mind most immediately is three things. It's a little triangle, a a beatitude and a mercy and a virtue um, that do have their practical, concrete, gritty realities to them. So Gospel of Matthew, what does Jesus pronounce upon the people listening to him in that deserted place? But blessed are you who mourn, you will be comforted. Jesus pronounces a blessing on the realities 
of our mourning. Mm -hmm. And then the church holds up the works of mercy and it positions burying the dead as a work of mercy that we're called to and that dignifies us when we accompany that with each other and are accompanied in that by each other as well. And then the virtue of hope too, to identify hope as one of the three theological virtues, one of the big three realities of what shapes a Christian life to be and to look like a Christian life in Jesus Christ, hope to realize that our lives, even in the midst of mourning and even in the midst of suffering, are not at the root level alone, abandoned, and deserted, but are being shown forward into a love that surrounds us at all times. It doesn't always make the morning easier, but it does assure us that who we are is going to be always deeper. Mm -hmm. So yeah, those aren't ideas. Those aren't abstractions. They translate into the very real ways that we exercise compassion and the very real ways that we live discipleship and the very real ways that we call life out of each other in the way that we accompany each other in suffering. Thank you. Yeah. That connection that you drew with the virtue of hope, it strikes me as a provocative and countercultural thing to say that it's possible, not only possible, but enacted that the church teaches us to have hope in this context The image that comes to mind here for me is in the funeral liturgy, the fact that there's this white garment placed over the casket. So I'm wondering if you could talk about liturgical mourning and in particular the connection to baptism that the church offers us as an answer to our our grief. Well, you've touched on the right symbolism, the, the fact that in our baptisms we are clothed with a white garment and at our funerals we have this white cloth laid over the casket is a sign that what we go through at a funeral, what we experience in death, is something that started already at our baptism. Mm. It's a weird way, I think, for us to think of baptism because we're not that used to it. But baptism has always been understood both as death and new life. And the Christian life post-baptism has been held up as an in-between period between death and death. Yeah. Baptism as a dying to the self that's passing away and biological death as the termination of a biological life, a planting of the seed of the body until it rises a spiritual glorified body. The life in between is, in the words of St. Paul, Christ, and then death is gain. The, the liturgy the prayers and the hymns and the smells and the movements, they put us into each other's physical presence so intimately and remind us that in our physical moments and in our physical encounters with each other, that's where Christ is present and felt and touched as well, where two or three are gathered in my name, right? That isn't just a sign where two or three people are having good thoughts about God with each other. That's when when you're eating together, when you're holding hands, when you're hugging in the in the the dustiness of life, like those things where we rub off on each other very literal ways. Yeah. That's where Jesus says, You're gonna find me there if you're looking, if you're paying attention. That's that's where I choose to be found and not in this abstract overhanging world. Mm-hmm. Right. 
And it strikes me that for precisely that reason, we don't have to just look at funerals or moments of burial, as important as those are, to receive the education that the church has to offer in this area of our mortality and our mourning. And I know you've mentioned before that she offers us the evangelical counsels as well as a path to healing. So I'm wondering if you could talk about what those are and how you think that day-to-day we would benefit from embracing them. The evangelical councils are sometimes otherwise referred to as vows that men and women make to God in order to commit themselves wholly to God, um, the three being chastity, poverty, and obedience. Chastity being, in its positive formulation, a wholehearted commitment, a whole commitment of the whole heart of oneself to concern for the Lord, the things of the Lord, which then translates in the negative component to not being married and not having kids, but the wholehearted component is its positive side. Poverty being a dispossession of being anchored down by material goods, communal ownership of property. And then obedience being a uh, decentering of one's commitment to one's own will in order to listen with others, to listen with a community to what God wants for us in terms of where I'm supposed to be and where we're supposed to be in a mission and a charge at a particular time. We take vows, we live councils fundamentally because we understand through the Gospels that that was the shape of Jesus's life. Jesus had his wholehearted commitment to the Father. Everything that he said was what he heard from the Father. Everything that he did was in obedience to the Father. His bread was the word of God, right? Mm -hmm. So chastity is an imitation of that wholeheartedness. Poverty is an imitation of, we just recently heard one of the gospels for mass saying, you like, don't take things with you on the journey, trust in the generosity and the hospitality of people. I mean, I really struggle with this, but (laughs) (laughs) don't be weighed down by the goods, be attached to the love. And then obedience being really at root uh, and openness of ear. When Jesus says, he who has ears to hear ought to hear, it's the opening of the hear and the opening of the heart to where the spirit's leading and a willingness like Mary to say, okay, here we are, let's do it. And the reason why religious take vows is because these are part of the shape of every Christian's life Mm -hmm. and every Christian's call to be people who are wholehearted, detached, uh, discerning and obedient to the spirit. Because then our, our life isn't pursued trying to grasp onto a security and a longevity that we're just not going to be able to produce for ourselves, that we're going to frustrate ourselves trying to find. Uh, It's going to lead us down sometimes a scary path, but a truthful path of losing our lives in order to find our lives. That's the life of discipleship. And maybe that's what makes death less scary, to, to be able to have learned how to live a life. And I'm not good at this by any stretch of the imagination, but I think it's a truthful and a good thing to be called to. To lose your life, to find your life, is to be able to encounter death as a finding life. Mm -hmm. Glorious. Thank you for for that explanation. It's helpful and I think points to practices that we can all strive to embrace to start living now what we want to live for eternity. How do you personally pray or think about your own death? I don't do it honestly all that often. I I have been listening to your podcast 
I remember the story about your uh, skull, the, the Sophia skull on your desk. Yep, <laughs> there she is. <laughs> <laughs> I've got it out. <laughs> My friend and our chaplain here who just died, Monsignor Mark Langham, he did the same thing. He kept a, a big skull on his desk for the, the same purposes. I think where this takes root for me is in what we were saying earlier about that that community cemetery, mm. the plot of land back at Notre Dame where we get buried, and that being a, a place of peace for me. I, I go there. It was a very surreal experience for me early on in my seminary life, attending a funeral of somebody in that cemetery and realizing to persevere in this life, this is where this is where I'll be. Yeah. This is the ground. I mean, we don't have family, well, some people still do, but we don't have the culture of family cemeteries or parish cemeteries as much anymore. So I don't think most people go through life having a sense that, all right, here's where I'm going to be buried, unless you, your family has figured these things all out very far in advance. So to stand on a plot of land and to say, no, this is it. Like, this is the earth that my body returns to earth as. This is the earth mm-hmm. that my body will return to life as. That was surreal. But it also helped me find, I think, a center of gravity. Maybe that's a good way to describe it. I, I feel drawn there. And so if I'm back at Notre Dame, I'll, I'll walk that plot of land. I will read the names, pray for the people. I'll try talking to them, having conversations. Like, I don't know your stories, but like, here's what's going on in my story. Or I could learn to get to know your stories. So I spend time there. I use it a place of prayer, of reflection, of study sometimes. And just inhabiting the space, I think, is hopeful and a peaceful reminder for me that the terminal point is something that's not scary. It's actually very, I don't want to say cozy, but welcoming in due time. (laughs) In due time. Yeah, that's beautiful. I, Memento Mori, which for our listeners who aren't familiar with it, is the traditional practice of remembering your own death and remembering your own mortality. I think for those who aren't accustomed to it, or maybe it's their first impact with this sort of reflection that you're describing in the graveyard, it can be a source of anxiety. I think it's Paul Tillich who says finitude and awareness is anxiety. You know, when we realize that our life is constrained by a body and in time and that we are constantly decaying. But I think that with, as you said, with time, actually finitude and awareness becomes gratitude because an organism that doesn't make itself or sustain itself in being and isn't eternal is created and sustained in being by another. And so I think that for me, the practice of memento mori has helped me make it more habitual to turn inward and recognize that I'm not making myself right now. I'm not shaping my own destiny and I'm not going to be here for that long. And so then lifting my gaze and saying, there's a you, there is someone with a capital S who is, who is doing that for me. So for those listeners, and I've gotten several messages who are a bit perplexed by the skull on the desk thing, hopefully that's a bit more thorough explanation and invitation to embrace this practice as well, to look at finitude and awareness, not so much as a cause for anxiety, but a cause for gratitude and an entreaty, an entreaty to the one who is creating us. Can I say two things in response to that? Yes. First, I'd like to read you uh, three lines from Pope Benedict when he was Cardinal Ratzinger. Oh, my favorite. It's his work on death and dying. I keep it open next to my study desk because 
it's relevant for my research and my writing on Dante. And what he says at one point is that we are colonies within each other. It's a really interesting phrase. He says we're colonies within each other. Mm. My own being is present in others as guilt or as grace. We're not just ourselves. Or more correctly, we are ourselves only as being in others, with others and through others. Whether others curse us or bless us, forgive us or turn our guilt into love, this is part of our own destiny too. Wow. It's a radical vision of our interdependence and our reception of ourselves from each other and the gift of ourselves, how other people rely on us to be holy in order for them to also be able to grow into the children of God that God is calling them to be. The second thing I would say is that with the anxiety around death, you know, something that we have to call out, not in a judgmental way, is that a lot of our fear of death is a fear of God. Mm. You know, what's going to happen to us after death? And if it's not a nothing, then what sort of hands am I going to be falling into? And is this a God who is going to be angry or frightening or not all that pleased with my finitude? Really not a creator, but more a judge than a creator. And this was a, I struggled with this in seminary a lot. Uh, I remember an exercise we were given very early on. We had this wise nun coming to visit us in the seminary one day, talking about the spiritual life. And she gave us all a piece of paper. And uh, the left-hand column was all filled with problems that we felt like we ran into in the spiritual life. Like, what are you struggling with in your spiritual life? And there's just a list of like things that a person can struggle with. And I don't remember what everything was. And I don't remember what I checked, but she just said, go down for the next five minutes, check the three things. So I said, all right, check one, check two, check three. And when we were done checking our self-diagnosis, she said, all right, so the right-hand column are responses uh, to those struggles, ways of addressing them. And what I remember is that my three all had the exact same address. They all said, you have to work on your images of God. Oh, wow. You have to uh, read, pray with, and encounter the mystics. You have to see what people are saying about where they experience God. They know God in their, in their bones, in their marrow, as love, as tenderness, as mercy, as both having paternal and maternal affection for us. So I did. I started trying to read more poetry, trying to read more of the mystics, trying to stop trying to figure things out in prayer, so much as allowing my prayer to be more in tune with my breathing and my feelings and learning how to name those. And I'm not like, I don't have the best image of God. I like, I I wouldn't like to say like, here it is, I've got it. But (laughs) I got over a lot of fears that way. And it was very freeing to be able to relate with God as somebody that even if God is going to judge me, I would prefer that reality than to to not know myself and to not know him. That's a God I can trust. Mm -hmm. And I think it's easier to talk about death, dying, limitation, mortality, finitude, all of this, if you believe that the other side of that is also going to be a falling into the arms of love. Like St. John of the Cross said, the only thing we have to face in the evening of life is love. That's what the reality is going to be. Thank you for sharing that. That's stunning. And I think offers a path forward for those of us who are in a similar place and a path that does lead to life, not just eternal life, but the hundredfold here and now, you know, this this deepening and this purification and this invitation to encounter the tenderness of God has helped you live now too. So I think that's something for all of us to just 
embrace in the hope of the hundredfold today, not just at the hour of our death. What a great phrase, embrace in the hope of the hundredfold. I got to write that one down in my, in my journal. <laughs> embrace the hope of the hundredfold. No, that's so profound. I don't hope for the hundredfold frequently. Mm. I think 30-fold is good enough, right? Don't we have like a good enough spirituality, like aim for purgatory land in heaven? Like, <laughs> but like what sort of life, what sort of life of frustration do you actually leave that with? No, to hope in abundance, to think that things could be proved to be better than we would want them to be. Oh, that's dangerous living. That's risky living. It is risky. It is risky. I've always, whenever I pray about wanting the hundredfold and asking it from Christ in the confidence that he is faithful and he can do anything. So he can give me the hundredfold in no matter what area of my life I'm struggling with. Whenever I pray about these things, I am always reminded of this line from Father Giussani, who, for those of our listeners who maybe haven't listened to previous episodes, he's the founder of Communion and Liberation, the ecclesial movement that I belong to. But he's talking to these high schoolers about the relevance of their faith to their daily lives and the reason to take seriously the proposal of Christ through his church. And he says, I'm paraphrasing here, but he says, I don't blame you if you don't long for heaven because you have terrible imaginations. But if you don't want the hundredfold here below, you are fools. And that always gets me because it's true. It's true. If we don't ask for and want the hundredfold here below, we're fools because we can we can taste it and see it and experience it. We know when we're experiencing flourishing in our work and in our relationships and everything. I have to remind myself to ask for it. But yeah, that's that's the Christian life here below. Man, that's... <laughs> We got to get you, we got to get you up there speaking to the people of God here in Cambridge. That's what this podcast is, Father Chase. <laughs> yes, yes, that's what we're doing. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so I guess as we're nearing the end of our episode here, time has flown, but I'm wondering if you have practical recommendations for our listeners. We do like to have every week a weekly challenge for those who want to enact some of the things that we've talked about. So if you have a set of recommendations or one particular weekly challenge that you'd want to offer for those of us who are trying to improve our relationship to our mortality and to mourn those who have gone before us in death, what would you offer? Well, I guess a very concrete thing would be go visit a cemetery, go pray for the dead, go get yourself there. There's so many indulgences and so much mercy that's promised for just being on the same land as the place where we bury each other and are buried ourselves and to pray for the repose of the souls there. Uh, If that's possible, I mean, here in England, we're allowed our daily walks. So (laughs) walk yourself to a place where you can pray for the dead. I think in the United States, uh, there's a little bit more freedom of movement and travel right now. So if there's a parish place to go or a family place to go to connect with ancestors and friends and to take some time to imagine there and to pray there and to journal there or something saying, all right, what does it mean for me to see this as a place where the Lord will encounter me in his fullness as well? Mm. But beyond that, like, if you can't do that, um, whatever the work of mercy, bury the dead means for you right now, do that. I love that recommendation. And I hope that we can all find a place to visit near us. And I do 
think that the church offers us a nice alternative here as well, which is most Catholic churches have relics of saints present somewhere within their four walls. And so you can go and venerate and pray about the life of this person who has gone to heaven before us and actually see either a part of their body or something that belonged to them. So I think that's another another way to get at that. Another thing that we try to do on every episode is to offer a media recommendation. So is there a book or a film, something that has helped you in your relationship to your mortality? Yes, yes. I alluded to a book very, um, I, I mentioned when working in the seminary through the, those images of God by reading poetry and mystics, there was a book that I picked up after that called Love Poems from God. And you can find it on Amazon or in a used bookshop, I'm sure. But each chapter is the poetry of a different person. Half of them are, uh, I think, Catholic saints like Francis of Assisi and Catherine of Siena. The other half of them come from other religious traditions that aren't all Christian. So there's some Islamic poets. Uh, there's a Hindu poet. It's bringing together of mystical traditions, um, but it's poetry from each of those traditions of encounter with God and learning how to relate with God as a lover. And it, in many ways, and I do not exaggerate when I say this, saved my vocation. I think I am a priest uh, today because of how that book helped me mm. relate with God. Not think about God. Relate with God as somebody that isn't to be feared, but is to be loved. Thank you. I'll definitely have to get a copy. And thank you again for joining me on The Pilgrim Soul today, Father Chase. You've given us all a lot to ponder and a lot to beg for. In particular, the virtue of hope, the beatitude of mourning, and the mercy of burying the dead. This three-part structure is something I know I'll carry with me from this episode, and I think it'll help me face the circumstances of the pandemic in a more human way, a more Christian way. So to all of our listeners, know of my prayers for you this coming week, that each and every one of you might experience the tender love of God, whose, whose will is not only for us to experience eternal joy with him in heaven, but to receive the hundredfold here below. Everything that Father Chase and I have referenced today will be in the show notes, as well as our contact information as usual. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode, I would ask you to please consider leaving a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts, as this would help others find us. All right, that's all we've got. So have a beautiful week and join us again next Monday here on The Pilgrim Soul. 